You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Laura Collins-Scott. Laura is the innovation lead at Clifford Chance in Singapore. There's so much to unpack in the episode today, but the three key takeaways for me were the first, how Laura found her way to Singapore, her meandering path from being a lawyer through to starting her own consultancy and more. The second, why the Create 6.5 program was created by Clifford Chance, uh, how it was influenced by clients, their internal stakeholders, and keeping in mind the competitive landscape. And the last, coming up to the first anniversary of the Innovation Lab, what are some of the lessons that Laura and her team have learned that can benefit individuals as well as other firms? I'm really excited about the episode today, so let's get straight into it. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I'm joined today by Laura Collins-Scott. Laura is the innovation lead at Clifford Chance in Singapore. And she's had quite an interesting journey to get to where she is today. So I guess, uh, Laura, welcome to the, to the podcast. And uh, maybe if we can start there, how did you get to Singapore? How did you get to working at Clifford? Hi there. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm delighted to be on the podcast as a big podcast fan myself. Interesting question about how I got here. I think like many people working in legal tech, my path has not been straightforward. So it's a bit of a saga, I will warn you. I studied in Ireland. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left university. And I knew I wanted to get a quote unquote good job. And uh, business and law was promising in Ireland. So I jumped straight into that. I've always been interested in finance and in law and in tech somewhat. So I wanted to keep my options open. And while I was studying, I actually leaned much more towards the finance side and ended up um, getting a graduate job with a consultancy and going straight to London to work at an investment bank on a big divestment project, Mm -hmm. which was really cool, actually, because it gave me exposure to a lot of and the inner workings of a bank. It was a big cross-functional program and I was on the project management side. It was very challenging. And while I was there, the consultancy I was working for at the time had quite an early prediction um, that the combination of change, skills and law and somewhat technology were going to be sought after in the future. So they looked across all of their um, employees and anyone that had a legal qualification or had done a law degree and was eligible for the New York bar, they offered Mm -hmm. it to them. So I was super ambitious and I said, yes, I'll jump at at the opportunity. I think I I had been working for about a year and a half on the same project and I was starting to get a bit restless, which is crazy. So I grabbed it and then really quickly regretted it because we had to study while working. So that was a really interesting experience of pre and post work study and Friday, Saturday night lectures. But it really taught me the meaning of hard work. So I'm grateful for it. And luckily I passed, um, which did surprise me at the time. It's, it's not an easy exam. So from there, I kept working on um, consultancy projects, moved from one major European investment bank to another where I worked at Innovation Lab 
And then again, always hungry for more. I was pushing for uh, more responsibility and I got a great role working on a regulatory implementation at Deutsche Bank. So it was all around uncleared margin, which is a very niche topic on you know, the implementation of rules under Amir and Dodd-Frank. And while I was there, it was a very intense project and it was a little bit thankless. You know, I always say with regulation, what's tough is you can't really do it that well. You can just pass or fail. It's just neutral. We complied. We passed. No one's ever going to say that was the best compliance I've ever seen. And hours were crazy. It was it was very ambitious of me to have uh, taken on that role. So while I looked composed in the office at home, I was really suffering. And it was one day sitting in one of our many, many work project plan review meetings where I looked around the room and I was the only female, I think of about 20. I was the only person even, you know, born in the same decade as me, maybe even two decades away. Hmm. And it was miserable. We were a few hours in and I just looked around and to borrow a quote from Sarah Blakely, who I love, I just thought this is not my movie. This is not my script. How has this happened? I'm not meant to be here. And I really quite abruptly pivoted somewhat and left that role, left that consultancy and went independent and started my own consultancy, which is called Boundless Blue. That was about three and a half years ago. And since then, I've worked with clients across industries, both startups and bigger companies basically helping them to make change. So to change existing processes, but more often to launch new businesses or to move into new sectors. So that work has led me to Clifford Chance, who I've been working with for several years. And the first engagement I did with them was back in London, actually, uh, working on the strategy and design for what is now called Clifford Chance Applied Solutions, the firm's standalone tech venture. And Applied Solutions builds SaaS products and uh, sells them on a subscription basis. It's been established as a separate entity and it hires pretty much exclusively tech people, although some of them are ex-lawyers. So it's a really different business to a law firm and it was a really fascinating experience for me to be right at the center of getting that set up. And from there, um, last year, I personally relocated to Singapore and had a great opportunity here with, with Clifford Chance again to help them establish their innovation activities in the region. And that was really centering around setting up the Create 6.5 Innovation Lab, which is based here in Singapore and is responsible for our innovation activities all across Asia Pacific. So within the lab, we work with startups, clients, government agencies, technology providers, basically anyone external to Clifford Chance. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the firm is doing this is... Before, before know, we, we go into that, that, if I can just chime in, sure. because we will certainly spend plenty of time talking about Create 6.5. So how was it? Obviously, you've, you've moved around quite a lot, right? To go from Ireland <laughs> yeah. to London and presumably somewhere else in Europe and back to London and Singapore now. What was the, I guess, what was the moment other than sort of sitting in a room full of 20 people where you were younger by them by a couple of decades and the only female and other factors that went into it for you to sort of go out there and create the consultancy element and is what you learned in I guess in your days sort of as working through cross uh, cross-functional teams project management all of the sort of change skills and doing the New York bar which is bloody hard so congratulations on that <laughs> did all of that sort of feed into and culminate into the boundless blue consultancy yeah, I, I mean, if I'm totally honest, part of it was the need. So mm. I had a need 
is to change. I wanted to make a change and I had to work with what I had at the time. I was, I was somewhat pushed out of, of that role due to the intensity. Mm-hmm. And then I started thinking on my feet. And yes, what I'd learned to, to up until that point, um, it really, it really helped. I had spent a lot of time working with the clients. I am very talkative <laughs> and I early on had been, um, you know, good enough at the business development side and early on had been asked to manage the client relationships on behalf of the consultancy, which was unusual for a more junior consultant. And mm-hmm. um, so I, I figured that I, I had a good shot. And I also realized quite quickly that having a blend of change skills, technology, knowledge, and understanding of financial services or the client side, mm-hmm. and then also the legal qualification and the legal education was quite a rare combination of skills. And the timing was really fortuitous for me that the legal tech scene was just starting to really blow up at that time. So it led to quite a natural USP for me within the market. And I had quite good network connections from my time working on those previous projects. So. I don't think it was a straightforward launch of Boundless Blue. Certainly at the time, it felt quite slow. And there were lots of days spent just pondering, what am I even going to do with this business? And is it going to work? But actually, when I look back, that time did pass quite quickly. And the setup was was relatively fast, maybe because I'm impatient with things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. And and the reason I wanted to sort of bring a bit more attention to that is because well, I imagine it's not going to be an easy thing any time to sort of go out and do your own thing. I think every every venture has certainly the hurdles you have to overcome, but also to highlight something that's becoming, I think, a bit more prominent as it should be, which is a little bit of an alternative path after doing a law degree or business degree or really any other degree. And it's really important because one of the things which you highlighted is the uniqueness in having the combination of all of their skills, right? Being a good change agent, having the requisite technical knowledge and the legal education, not everyone has that. And if you can actually combine all of those things with a, I suppose, a different perspective on the client's relationship with both you, a firm, or any other business, then it can be a really profitable venture and a fulfilling one if you don't want to practice law because, frankly, not everyone who studies law is going to practice law, myself included. And, you know, there are certain certain other paths out there that actually might be better suited for you and might be better for you longer term. Yeah, I totally agree. And if you're entrepreneurial and you're that way inclined, which I always have been, even when I go back to when I was a kid or when I was a teenager, I was always thinking about little businesses or making little bracelets to sell in school. So I've always been that way. And and if you enjoy having that autonomy in your life, um, it can really give you a, a different type of lifestyle. And you're right, a different way of working in an industry that traditionally only has one sort of famous set path of becoming a lawyer. I think also what's interesting for the clients of people that work in the way that I do is you can really bring a very different perspective to a company when you're a so-called outsider. You're not worried about um, your future ladder. You're not worried about your bonus or your appraisal at the end of the year. And politics are a lot less relevant. Of course, politics are relevant when you are you know, trying to get projects uh, approved and you're trying to progress things. And you always want to be mindful of your environment. That's critical. But you do get to 
take a big step back from that stuff. And sometimes you can say the thing in the room that no one else wants to say, which I think is a very empowering position, but also hugely beneficial for the client because sometimes that thing needs to be said. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, I have had plenty of people on the podcast that have followed that path. And actually what you're saying is it's really important because I have certainly been in meetings where you do have to be able to And it's not the thing that no one else is saying is inappropriate. It's just a difficult thing to say. And when you have 20 other variables weighing against that to decide if that's the right decision or not, you know, for your career and all those things. And it's easier sometimes to actually be really honest and just say, look, we think this is the best thing to do, or at least this is something you should consider. That's very much so. Okay, so let's go back to Create 6.5. Yeah, so tell me a little bit more about what is it uh, to begin with? And then we can sort of dig into why and how of it as well. Sure. So Create 6.5 is the innovation lab um, that Clifford Chance has set up for Asia Pacific. It is based in Singapore and it is the first innovation lab for the firm globally. So it's pretty exciting and I'm actually really enjoying being involved in this project and leading it. It's been one of the best things I've ever worked on. And I don't have to say that. (laughs) (laughs) So it was established last year and we're very fortunate here in Singapore to have fantastic support from the Singaporean Economic Development Board. They're very forward looking and they are extremely supportive of legal tech. Mm -hmm. And so we're very grateful for that support and there are also um, some very active organizations here in Singapore most notably the Future Law Innovation Program which is more commonly known as FLIP Mm -hmm. and that's been established by the Singaporean Academy of Law to basically build a community all around legal technology in Singapore. So we're partnered with FLIP and they know all of the legal tech startups here and actually beyond. They know a lot of them across Asia Pacific as well. So we really benefit from that partnership. And what we're trying to do in the lab is to bring something a little bit different to the market. We know that FLIP can offer a lot in the way of community building support from other startups and just general advice on being established. So we we try and complement that as best we can. We know that what we can bring to the startup community and to people working on legal tech is quite different. We can help with lawyer feedback. We can help with engagement with our clients and feedback from them. Mm. The reason we've set up the lab is because we recognize that no law firm can build all of the technology that's needed in-house. It just will not be possible for any firm. Right. And it's very difficult right. to innovate in a bubble and to innovate in isolation. And particularly for law firms who traditionally have not been that heavy on tech, there's a lot that needs to be figured out and a, a lot of new processes and new technologies that need to be adopted. And so how, because yes, I know Flip, I know the Singapore Academy of Law and the, the fantastic organizations. And actually, generally, I think in, in Singapore, there seems to be this sort of, I guess, this grassroots movement, this hotbed of startups and generally just tech companies and law firms that are pushing, I don't want to say pushing the boundaries, but certainly they're pushing the acceptance of technology Right. So they're willing to at least take a chance on a lot of different technologies to see how it might affect Mm -hmm. their business. And it doesn't hurt that the government is supporting the effort with certain initiatives around that. So I guess from from your point of view, so you're working with the 
basically the startups, the tech providers, right? And what is it that Clifford Chance is offering to those to those companies, to those tech providers? Is it just a, a mentoring, a guidance kind of thing? Are you able to help them test out their hypotheses? Are you able to help them sort of ideate different ways to solve a problem or something else? Hmm. So we do all of the things that you've just mentioned, but maybe I can set a little more context about the, the bigger strategic goal. So sure. there are many accelerators, incubators in the world right now. This is not a new phenomenon. And we were fortunate in that we can look to other industries, particularly financial services, which is quite mature in this space, for inspiration around what works well, what may not work. And what we saw when we did that research is many of these projects are set up without a specific goal in mind, which I know sounds obvious. But sometimes we get so caught up in building a year-long program and bringing X startups in-house that we forget actually what we're, we're trying to achieve. So we decided to take a slightly different approach. And we really put commercial outcomes at the center of what we're doing at Create65. And that's not necessarily commercial outcomes just for us. It's commercial outcomes for the vendor and the technology providers and our clients. So at the end of the day, we're all in this to try and improve the way that we're currently doing our work or to have options for new ways to do our work or to set up new businesses. So that's what we're all about. So across each year, we've got several different initiatives. Mm-hmm. Our most prominent one that you may have seen um, online is called Create Six Five Innovators. For that initiative, we invited startups um, in Asia to apply to collaborate with us across a 12-week uh, project. And each stage of the project, so we break it up into two-week chunks. Mm-hmm. Each stage has very specific outcomes. And the overall goal of that 12 weeks is to move to a proof of concept stage or to form a business with that startup. Potentially, we keep things very open. So it's really a voyage of discovery. And when we're selecting the startup that to collaborate with, the winner, and we make sure that the goals for each party are very clearly understood and really clearly communicated so that everyone understands why we're doing it, what we're trying to achieve, and what the decision points will be throughout. But uh, like I said, the ultimate goal would be either us buying the license, so that's a commercial outcome for the startup, mm-hmm. or us potentially launching a product ourselves, maybe through Applied Solutions, using the technology that the startup sells, that there's potentially a joint commercial outcome, and there are several other combinations that I won't go into, but I'm sure your your listeners can imagine. Okay, uh, that sounds really interesting. And yeah, I like the idea generally that that you guys are moving away gen- within, the, within the field of legal tech, I suppose, you know, of not innovating in a bubble. And I think law firms certainly partnering with technology companies rather than to some degree becoming technology companies, which is also a growing mm-hmm. trend. I really do enjoy the idea of these sort of, I guess, a 12-week sprint or I guess the two-week sprints within the 12-week window within a specific outcome for two weeks. So is the idea that you are obviously alongside with this with the other company iterating on the same problem across 12 weeks or are you mm-hmm. sort of going through a stage of development where every two weeks you're trying to ship a, a feature or product or basically solve a particular problem? It would depend on the particular startup and the stage that they're at and what we're jointly trying to achieve. The first time we did this was with Tiger, a Singapore-based mm-hmm. AI company who had 
already done lots of great work in other industries, in financial services and several others, and they wanted to break into law a little bit more. They had a little bit of legal experience, but more through the work they had done for financial services companies. So the 12 weeks for them, we focused more on research, and it was research that we also hadn't done um, as a firm on our side. So we interviewed over 20 lawyers across the region, over 10 people from different teams across the firm, like finance and our tech change people to understand how Tiger's AI technology um, might best be uh, used by us as a firm. But it was very much focused on problem statements and use cases in that case. It may be that we choose to enter a follow-up 12-week phase with them where we would focus more on the, the POC or building a prototype. I guess I should add at this point that we intentionally keep it quite flexible. Mm-hmm. We're we're coming up at the, to the end of our first year and we're still learning what works for the firm. We're learning what works for the legal tech startup community. It's still early days. So we have a big emphasis on reflection on these shorter time periods where we try and achieve things quite quickly in a time boxed fashion rather than you know, long horizons and open ended budgets, which I think can be quite risky for startups who Very are so early. Yeah. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. And I think, I guess, speaking of reflection in, in the note that you sent me, you know, you, you talked about some of the reasons for why Create65 was launched. And there, mm. there were sort of three standout categories there around, I guess, the what you heard, the message you heard from your clients, you know, the, the importance of people and I suppose a service or the technology being a, a competitive factor. Would you mind expanding mm-hmm. on each of those just so the audience has a good insight into some of the, how that's important to you and, and Clifford Chance? Sure, certainly. So what we're hearing from clients all over the world is that they are under pressure to reduce their legal spend, mm-hmm. but then at the same time, they are facing increasing complexity due to, say, high volumes of data, greater volumes of documents. And actually some of that complexity comes from technology as well, like cybersecurity issues and new rules that they need to comply with that relate to tech. So essentially they need more for less. And we believe that technology is a great way to achieve that. And what we're actually seeing from clients are at times requests to demonstrate the technology that's being used to deliver services, um, which is a relatively new request, but something that we expect to see more of in the future. Yeah, it's really important, as you were talking about the incubator earlier, that you referenced, Mm. you know, that you borrowed some ideas and learnings from what happened in in fintech. And Mm. I think that this is a key point, because as you introduce technology, the complexity doesn't generally for the most part go down it actually increases but you almost get this sort of shift in spectrum where you're able to focus more and more on the higher value task as you're able to automate or simplify the really low value tasks so people are generally a bit more fulfilled with what they're doing with their time even if there is more complexities because you know for the most part people enjoy solving problems as long as there's i suppose a a means to an end as, as far as it goes yeah and then so the second part was people. So yeah, how do the people at the firm react to these kinds of projects? And you know, what do you hear from hmm. the outside world? Well, what we see is that people people's view of work is, is changing a little bit. 
people are looking for more flexibility within their life. They're looking for the ability to work from home, to maybe have a slightly different work-life balance than maybe was traditional for the legal industry. And then complementary to that, we have a world where we have incredible technology in our hands every single day. Our phones are amazing. They can do so much. So we're used to being able to achieve quite a lot on our home laptops or in our personal life. And this is particularly true for younger lawyers and lawyers just coming into this industry because they have been exposed to technology throughout their education, school, and perhaps at school as well. So technology is a very natural for them and they can see ways of using technology to solve problems within a law firm quite quickly. To them, it's a little bit more common sense. And um, so coupling those two things together, we know that it's really important for us to improve the technology that we're using internally so that we can facilitate that flexible working so that we can perhaps cut down on the time being spent on some routine and mundane tasks that perhaps are manual today. And so that we can solve uh, some of these repetitive challenges that a trainee or a, you know, a graduate is just going to say, I can't believe that I'm manually extracting <laughs> in this way. Uh, so we see it being really important to people's satisfaction. And yeah, tech is just right at the center of that for us. Yeah. And I think there's there's so much research that's coming out from poll surveys and actual academia, where this is becoming such an important factor, just generally as people completely, as you said, treat work in a very different way than they used to maybe five, 10 years ago. And mm-hmm. It's, I mean, there's obviously two sides of the coin because one is that, you know, you want people to be able to know the base foundational level work that if the technology wasn't there, they'd at least know what the, how and why the work is being done. But then actually the process of doing the work should be simplified. And very much so, I think this is such a key thing. And I, I know so many lawyers that when I've spoken to them, they, they've said, they would still practice today. They've moved on to other things, whether it's sort of knowledge management, whether it's sort of creating their own companies and so on. But if they had some of the tools that exist today when they were practicing, they would probably still be practicing. Because one of the things mm. I, I can speak from experience that a lot of lawyers really hate is just all the mundane work, right? Because you're taking super smart people and then asking them to do some really quite monotonous, mundane things, which, you know, don't get me wrong, they're very important, but there certainly should be a better way of handling that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we can all think back to a job or a, a particular thing that we've had to do at some point in our careers that's been a little bit painstaking, a little bit too manual. So I agree. It's exciting to think that we can reduce the time being spent on those. And then, yeah, free, free people up to focus on the work that matters more and actually bringing value to clients, even spending more time with their clients and their teams and rather than being stuck pouring over data and, and paper. Yeah. Very much so. And, and then the last facet was obviously the business aspect of things, right? So how it becomes competitive advantage for the business. Yeah. So I guess on the competitor side, we have two sides of the same coin. I mean, we're seeing our competitors adopt more technology. We're seeing the rise or the continued rise of alternative legal services providers and actually back bars. Visser, who's the head of innovation here, has a great quote that he uses, which is, it's not even fair to call them alternative legal services (laughs) providers anymore. They're legitimate businesses that are competing. They're legitimate threats to law firms. So, you know, law firms have to adopt technology. That is the way the industry is going. We need to carefully 
look at the development, not just at other firms, but also in the technology space. We need to look at providers that have very good data and workflow capabilities. Mm. And then, like you said, on the other side of that same coin, we've got the competitive advantage. So we know that by using technology, we can do certain tasks more effectively, perhaps more reliably. Perhaps we can even handle volumes of data that previously could not be reviewed by a human, particularly in the areas of, say, derivatives or high volumes of loan documentation. There's even use cases that we, you know, experiment around, such as could we use technology to review past documentation and notify us when a law changes and impacts Mm. a document or a legal scenario. And those things just aren't possible for any firm in the world today. Uh, humans cannot sit by and just read <laughs> historic documents. So we get really excited when we think about the possibilities out there. And I, it's a competitive advantage. It's a competitive advantage for any law firm who chooses to invest in tech. Awesome. And then, as you were saying earlier, there was certainly no, no shortage of incubators from whether it's law firms or other businesses. You guys have a, a different approach to this, you know, coming up to the 12 month mark. So, what are some of the things that you've learned in the way that Create 6.5 has been, I guess, established and run that either other firms or lawyers could sort of learn from? Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot. <laughs> We've got lots to share. I'm still learning. In my opinion, one of the biggest challenges in this environment is actually choosing the thing that you want to solve, the problem you want to solve, or choosing the area that you want to work on. There are no shortages of challenges in any industry. There's no shortage of use cases within um, the legal industry or even a law firm. And there are many technology providers that will tell you they can solve those, but actually choosing internally what your focus should be and then matching that with an external provider or the right partner to collaborate with is not straightforward. And it may be that some of the projects that you start may not be the right projects to take forward. So it's really important to have a portfolio of projects for that reason. I think this is something that we'll continue to get better at. Part of how we overcome this is through a lot of research with our lawyers, with clients. Mm. Like I mentioned earlier, we travel to different offices and actually meet lawyers in person and we try and validate that the working practices and the requirements are consistent across offices and across borders. But yeah, it's, it's never going to be straightforward right. this part. Yeah, and it's really important that you consult not just, I guess, the internal users, the lawyers in your case, but also the clients, right? Because ultimately, the problem that you're looking to solve, it needs to be both on an agreed form for both your users and the clients, because otherwise, you know, especially when it's going to have an impact on the client, until you do that, unless you do that, it's not going to be a successful project. Yeah. And in my few years, three and a half years almost of working on these projects, um, not just with this firm, but with, with legal tech providers, I've seen a real shift in the attitude around letting people like me or tech people meet with clients. So initially there was some nervousness and it, and it may be at some firms there is still some nervousness around letting the tech people uh, go into those types of meetings. But actually what you find is that clients are really excited to talk about yeah. solutions to some of the challenges that they face and that everybody loves being asked 
their thoughts and their opinion on how things might be better. And sometimes it can be a little bit of a therapy session. So <laughs> I've really seen an evolution just generally in the industry that it's more acceptable and lawyers are, are more comfortable now letting the tech, the innovation people go and meet their clients. So yeah, it's really important to ask them and uh, great to see that it's, it's becoming easier to do so. Yeah, very much so. And I think it's just that team approach to solving problems, right? It's not even, you know, in the past, it used to be, even if a lawyer is sort of providing you the the answers, the client sometimes, I don't think they actually did assume that, but certainly I think it wouldn't be too far from, from them assuming that, oh, actually this person's doing all of that. But now there's more openness and transparency in, mm-hmm. in you know partners or associates saying actually i have a whole team behind behind me supporting you on coming up with a, a realistic solution for what you what you need from us right and actually clients are really excited by that and actually introducing technology there makes a massive difference yeah and i think complementary to that is this shift from innovation and tech from being a nice to have slightly more pr centric initiative mm-hmm. perhaps to confirm to more of a core part of the strategy right oh so, yeah so i'm going to summarize all of that as being focused on the problem so knowing what you want what yeah. problem you want to solve <laughs> okay yeah. what else have you learned you said that you learned a lot yes i think the second thing that i've observed is that there are lots of myths around innovation and one of them is that innovation is just wild and unpredictable and that everybody needs a lot of freedom and we don't know where it's going to go and what's going to happen. And that's not a recipe for success. So in reality, innovation needs to be quite disciplined and you need to have a framework or so-called rules of the game so that you can assess what you're doing. You can you know, select that problem that you want to work on and then you can um, monitor whether it's working and whether it's something that you want to take forward. So you don't need to follow a specific framework or a specific methodology that's out there in the public domain. You can have your own version internally, but everybody needs to know what the rules of the game are and Mm. what the parameters are that they need to work within. So I would say that's quite a big misconception and uh, something that we work hard to communicate to to teams and also to legal tech startups that we need to be very specific about our goals. Hmm. Yeah. So, and I guess that could be, and I'm just trying to summarize all of these into, into a couple of words, but that would be, I guess, a disciplined approach to innovation. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. Now I'm sure we can talk about these all day. Do you want to maybe, do you want to maybe give two or three more? And then, yeah, sure. I think that could be a good sort of wrap up point. Yeah, sure. So, I think another one that I'm particularly passionate about is setting time and budget constraints up front. So often, and this is not just specific to a law firm or the legal industry, this is pretty commonplace. Often what we do is we pick a problem and then we have a blank canvas and we just say, how how long will this take us and how much will it cost? And that's how we do our resource allocations. Actually, that can be very, very risky, especially in legal tech, where the technology is developing, where your understanding of your use cases are developing. So what we try to do and what I try to promote is uh, setting your constraints up front. So both your time and your budget and seeing what's achievable in that time frame. And then at the end of your 12 weeks, say, you can make a decision on how you want to 
proceed. And there's a great book that I adore written by the founder of Basecamp, whose name is Jason Freed. Mm-hmm. And the book is called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And yep. he is a big promoter of this concept. And so I think I've been quite inspired by how they do things at Basecamp. So yes, we try and push that in the lab. So that was maybe not an easy one to, to summarize, but... I'm going to have <laughs> a go anyway. Yeah, I think, yeah, no, I think it's it just because it goes back to, I guess, what they call in development world, scope creep, right? So the idea of just managing yeah. some sort of scope around your budgets, yeah. your requirements, and everything else that goes around that. And certainly, yeah, Jason Fried is a big supporter of this. And actually, if people don't know who he is, I would certainly recommend checking out some of his books. He's done, he's wrote, he's wrote quite a lot about these kinds of aspects, as well as remote work and other mm. things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I think my next one, it's not easy to choose. I think my final one has to be around lawyers respecting the discipline of change management. And I promise I'm not just pushing this because I'm a consultant. So of course there's some bias. <laughs> But I do find it interesting, and it's not specific to this firm, this is very widespread, that sometimes there is not, that lawyers don't always respect the discipline of change management as being uh, something that's quite complex and skills that need to be developed over time. And no lawyer is going to have those skills unless they've had a prior career in that area. So I think it's important for lawyers to recognize that you can't just wake up with those skills. And I think Clifford Chance has been really forward thinking in this area because for a long time now, they've been hiring a lot of continuous improvement experts. Mm. They've got legal project managers. They're growing out their tech team significantly in different offices. So I think it's important for the industry to understand where a lot of our skills and value does lie. And then what are the things that we may want to borrow from other industries and bring in to actually give effect to our change. Yeah, and I think it's such an important point because a lot of law firms, and it's actually wonderful to see that a lot of law firms have these roles and more and more people are joining firms for these types of, I'm going to call them alternative roles and not in a negative way, just alternative to being a lawyer in a law firm, I guess. And it becomes an important part for the firms to treat them with the same sort of respect that they might treat a lawyer because it needs to become part of your day-to-day strategy. Almost the DNA of the law firm needs to adapt to that in the way that you know people know, look, th- this is hard. Change is going to be hard and bumpy. It's okay. That's, that should be fine. That should be an expectation that's set, but you can still be open to it. You should still be open to developing those skills, either from from scratch by reading, researching, and all those other avenues, or by learning from the individuals that the law firm is bringing on board and seeing how they approach a problem, which a lawyer or someone else may actually approach in a very different way. And it goes mm-hmm. all the way from just, just I guess, giving feedback from coming up with different solutions to to the same problems and actually just listening to your clients and other users internally. Yeah, absolutely. I think, as you pointed out, there's a few different ways that you can to get these skills in. And I think it's a great thing for any lawyer to spend a little bit of time on project management skills and just understanding what those processes look like. And that will really help lawyer to work with technology people in the future, even if you don't want to go down that path yourself. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So that was fantastic. So you guys have, so have you crossed one year mark yet or are you coming up to it? 
just coming up to it. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are coming up to a year. What's next for Create Six Five? And if people want to find out more, how can they find out more? Or if they want to get involved, how can they do so as well? Yeah. So what's next for us? We are in the midst of doing focus groups with startups and clients to understand where we should go next. This is part of our um, reflection and we take cues from from the market as to how we can be helpful. So we're, we're currently shaping our next round of Create 5 Innovators, which is will take place next year and we're toying with different structures, how we can improve on what happened earlier this year. So we're very excited about that. And if you want to follow our development, you can go to the Create 6.5 website. The easiest way is just just Google Create 6.5, Clipper Chance, and you can follow everything there. We're also quite active on LinkedIn and other social forums. So stay tuned. And if you want to get involved, you're a legal tech startup. And if you're a lawyer from another firm and you're interested in collaborating or if you're a client, you can get in touch with me on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Perfect. And I'll include all of those links in the show notes as well. So yeah, Uh, thank you so much. That was, yeah, that was really, that that was really wonderful. So it sounds like you guys still have a lot of work ahead of you, which is fantastic. And you're still continuing to reflect and learn. And I look forward to seeing what's next for actually both you individually and also Create 6.5. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I love your podcast. I think what you're bringing is really different, always interesting listening. And I'm thrilled because I adore podcasts and this is my first ever podcast. So I'm very grateful that you have asked me. So thank you. No, thank you for accepting. Yeah, this is my first podcast I'm creating. So yeah, (laughs) so not a problem. Yeah, it's a learning experience for me as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.